We look at part two of Joseph's story that takes us right up until the end of Genesis. And while you're turning there, chapter 37. Who's scared of the dark? A few people are scared of the dark still. Who was scared of the dark? Certainly as children. No, Sheila was a tough nut. <laughs> Sheila was a white. But it's a natural fear, isn't it? Scared of the, Why are we scared of the dark? Why, why are we scared of the dark? Because you can't see. We call it scared. I mean, you, can, you can say you're, you're scared of lions. It's the lion you're scared of. You can say you're, I don't know, scared of tight spaces. It's the tight space that makes you scared. When you say you're scared of the dark, it's not actually the darkness you're scared of. You're scared of what it might contain. It's an uncertainty. It's fears. Your mind starts playing tricks, doesn't it? It's not actually, when we say fear of the dark, it's not fear of the dark. It's fear of what the dark implies, isn't it? Who is, therefore, despite your fear of the dark, who has survived being in the dark? All of us, strangely enough. And yet that doesn't necessarily diminish your fears for next time, does it? Necessarily. It's curious, isn't it? The dark is a curious thing. There are physical dark places and there are metaphorical dark places. Sometimes we can be in a dark place in our lives because of situations, scenarios, relationships. Anybody here, I don't know if you've been, anybody here has been conspired against, maybe in the workplace, it's possible. Anyone been abandoned? It's possible. If you are, you're in a pit. You're in a, you might not be in a physical pit, but you're, if you're in that situation, you're in a metaphorical pit. Anybody here been hated? Bullied, perhaps? I'm sure quite a few of us in the past. I'm sure all of us can relate to being rejected or misunderstood. And when we're in that place, we find ourselves in a pit. We feel isolated. We feel the darkness closing in, don't we? There are physical dark places and there are metaphorical dark places where we feel alienated. Now this story of Joseph as a whole, his story is probably the best known Bible story both in and out of the church, certainly in the Western world, shall we say. And um, what's interesting though, it's not a story that's all sweetness and light, is it? There's a lot of darkness in this story. See, this story includes rejection, conspiracy to murder, Kidnapping, effectively, slavery, abandonment, and huge deception as well. It's not all sweetness and light. This is a story of dark moments. But actually, thankfully, when we get to visit the whole story in its entirety, we recognize that those dark moments are simply the black velvet backdrop for God's little diamonds to sparkle against. So we're just going to read the second half of chapter 37. David introduced us to the beginning of the story last week, the first part of this chapter. Uh, we introduced to Joseph, the youngest of many sons, and, uh, and his dad puts him on a pedestal. His dad treats him as the favourite and gives him this coat of many colours, if you recall, which is a, a very overt, visible sign to the rest of the brothers that this one's special, even though he's not the eldest. So already resentment is starting to grow. So let's find out what happens next. We're going to start from verse 12 up until the end of the chapter. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, this is dad, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Now what's curious already so far is I'm not even sure his dad's fully aware or what's been going on amongst these brothers and how they feel about him, really. 
if he thought at any point his brother would be in danger from, uh, Joseph would be in danger from his brothers, I'm sure he wouldn't have sent him. He sends him off on his own to meet the gang. I don't think dad's fully in touch with what's going on in his own family, to be honest. So he sends him. Uh, last part of verse 14. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, which is where they lived, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, this is the eldest, he rescued him out of, the, out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And this was that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. It's, it's worth noting, Reuben, it's worth noting. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This means I will grieve to the day I die. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, which we'll find out a little bit more about in future weeks. Let me just pray. Lord, we see here a story of immense darkness. We see a story of true animosity, hatred, conspiring, we don't even know what's going through Joseph's mind at the time, but I pray just this, by the end of this morning, you'll help us realise this is more than just a story for us to listen to at bedtime. This is something that applies to us today. Lord, by Holy Spirit, may you just reveal to us your living word at work, even in us through this story this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to talk about pits 
Joseph ends up in a physical one for a short while. We've got to be aware, this fall from grace is very quick. Within a matter of hours, he goes from privileged son to slave. Just like that. He ends up in a physical pit for a while. Then he ends up in a metaphorical pit in slavery. And then later on we'll find out in prison. He doesn't actually see the light of freedom for 12 or 13 years from this moment. This is massive. And I want to talk about physical and metaphorical pits. What I want to look at is three things. There are three things that all pits we discover have in common. And I want to look at each of these in turn. So the first one. What is the first one? We've already mentioned it. Darkness. All pits have darkness. Let's just remind ourselves of this story. Joseph is a teenager. Right at the beginning of chapter 37, explains him as 17. And this story happens not long after that. He's still a young man. He's still... He's not even out of his teens yet. And he's put on a pedestal by his dad. He's given this robe to make him stand out to all his brothers. I'm different to you. And then he's spoken to by God through dreams, which says one day all your brothers and your father will bow down to you. So what does he do with that information? He tells them. He brags about it. Naturally, of course, it generates hatred. His arrogance is worth noting, but it has been nurtured in his upbringing, by his dad. So nevertheless, this arrogant young whippersnapper who has been set apart by God, but is shoving it in his brother's faces by different means, he is sent to find them. And here's the first aspect of darkness. You see, his brothers, they're not even where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be in Shechem, which is about 50 miles from home. That's a good few days' journey with sheep and their little legs, isn't it? 50 miles from home, they're not even where they're supposed to be. They're in Dothan, which is another 13 miles further. But eventually he finds them. And this is the first aspect of darkness. This is dark. They conspired to kill him while he was barely on the horizon. It didn't take for him to turn up and to hang out with them. Daddy's looking for you. And then start winding them up and reminding them of his dreams. It doesn't even take that. All it takes is a glimpse on the horizon and that hatred that has been festering all along, and I'm sure while they were out with the flocks, they were talking about Joseph. This has been festering. This is pure, intense hatred. This has been tearing at their guts. And all it takes is one glimpse of him, of him on the horizon to decide to kill him. This is more than just sibling rivalry, isn't it? This is pretty dark. Intense hatred. Second aspect, the second aspect of darkness here. We see he's not put in a pit in Dothan, which is nearby and was populated. He's not placed in a pit in a populated area. He's placed in a pit in the wilderness. This is quite willful. This is a dry cistern or a well. And as much as it states there was no water in it, every cloud has a silver lining, he won't drown. Also means he's in the wilderness with no water. <laughs> he's going to get thirsty, isn't he? I'm surprised, in fact, that he survived being put in this pit. They can be up to 10 metres deep. Minimum of four, up to 10. Being put in there, I'm surprised he didn't break any limbs. But he's down in this deep, dark pit in the middle of nowhere with no water. He doesn't drown, but he's thirsty. And yet what do his brothers do? Immediately after, they sit down next to it and eat. That's pretty cold, isn't it? They're conspiring to kill their own brother 
has not dampened their appetite at all. <laughs> this is heartless, isn't it? Heartless. Pure hatred is cold, is heartless. But then Judah does something. Reuben's worth noting, the older brother, whether it's guilty conscience or a genuine conscience, his older brother and a matter of integrity to rescue his brother, we don't know. Reuben's worth noting. But the other nine, pretty nasty. And Judah, he's, he's son number four. Judah tries using, uh, he's our own brother, he's our own flesh. Let's not kill him, but let's sell him. He's trying to be nice. We're not going to kill him because he's our own brother. But his actual very first words are, what profit will it make us if we kill him? <laughs> he's now in it for the money. He's willing to sell his own brother and persuade the others so they can make a killing, <laughs> make a profit out of this for these slave drivers. I mean, thank God for caravanners. If you're a card-carrying member of the caravan club, God uses you in a big way. Some members of the caravan club came past with their Torahs and their RVs and uh, took Joseph down to Egypt. God used them, unbeknownst to them, in a big way. But Judah is willing to sell his own brother to make a profit, and that's the only reason for him that stops him from killing him. The money. This is pretty dark, isn't it? This is worse than EastEnders. Even worse. Fourth aspect of darkness here. What do they then do? They lie to their dad. Their deception is huge. So they don't just tell some fibs, but they even use a prop. They provide evidence of Joseph's death. They don't just create an entire cover story. What they do is just make up some evidence, give it to dad and let him fill in the gaps. This is quite manipulative, isn't it? They use lies to cover up their sin. How common is that? <laughs> How naturally does that come to us? I googled the other day about this subject. On Google, as you're typing in your search request, it brings up a lot of auto-suggestions based on what everyone else around the world, the most popular requests are what colour is, and it will bring up some suggestions to finish your question because more people have asked that same question. So if you type in lies to cover up, all the auto-suggestions, the list comes up. This is what people around the world most likely have been typing in. Lies to cover up hickeys. Love bites. Hickeys, love bites. I, I, had, I had one once, but it was with my wife. Lies to cover up cheating. Lies to cover up pregnancy, lies to cover up smoking, and on the list goes, and it gets worse, actually. Lies to cover up. It's an epidemic. Even today, 4,000-ish years later, it's pretty huge, isn't it? How do you unravel a web of lies? Ultimately, there's only one thing that will unravel a web of lies. It's confession. Pops it immediately. However, what do they do? They comfort their dad in his mourning. False comforters. This is so deceptive. This is so dark. And they haven't even just used any prop, a piece of his clothing. He'd have had other clothes on as well. It wasn't just wearing a robe. They used the robe, 
his privilege has been tearing at their guts. It's torn at their guts for all this time. So what do they do? They take what sets them apart, they tear it, and they tear him down. You see what's been festering in them for all this time. This jealousy, this envy, this hatred, this resentment. For us, we can all be at the receiving end of resentment, can't we? Quite often we forget we can be the ones doing the resenting. I know I've done it. We can all be on the receiving end, but we can also be the cause quite easily sometimes, without realising. We can be blind to it sometimes. We can all be Joseph, but we can also be the brothers. You see, trouble is, as humanity, we're in a pit, aren't we? Ultimately. Sin comes naturally to us, and it takes Holy Spirit to help us combat it. Even as Christians, we can still have the old ways and the old habits and the old ways of thinking and the old ways of comparing ourselves to other people and thinking they're better than us or thinking I'm better than them or wishing we've got what they've got. It still comes naturally, doesn't it? It's a battle, isn't it? We're in a pit ourselves. So that's pretty dark, but I'm not going to carry on because we'll feel all <laughs> heavy. First aspect of all pits is darkness. There is another aspect. In pits, there are echoes. There are echoey places. In a physical pit, you're walled in and your sounds reflect back at you. You're alone with yourself you hear your sounds reflecting back at you. In a metaphorical pit, you're alone with yourself and your thoughts reflect back at you. They bounce around your head, don't they? When you've been rejected, when you've been isolated, when you've been abandoned. Your thoughts reflect back at you and you end up viewing other people from a different perspective that are skewed by your thoughts and your fears. They keep bouncing back. You project your fears. You assume the worst sometimes. It's echoey, isn't it? It's bouncing around. But also, we have another kind of echo going on here, which we need to recognise are in every pit as well. What do I mean? This is a good echo. You see, when it comes to storytelling, there are only basically seven basic storylines. Every story comes into them. There's voyage and rescue, or overcoming the monster, or rags to riches, comedy, tragedy, the quest, and the other one I've forgotten. All storylines fit into one of those seven. All storylines we tell or we hear fit into those categories. There are echoes between stories. There are also, every story we tell or we hear, there are echoes of the greatest story, the reason why we're here, what's gone wrong, and what God's done about it, the greatest story. There are echoes of that in every story we tell or we hear, or a rebellion against it. I'll leave that with you for now. Have a little ponder. I might be preaching on that next year. If you've got any more questions, come and ask me. Every story we tell bears echoes of the greatest story or a rebellion against it. And the Bible does this over and over again. The stories the Bible tells, we see echoes of the greatest story, the bigger picture, that God uses over and over again to remind us to point the signposts. There are echoes of the greatest story. And here we see the same thing. What do I mean? See, for example... Some hundreds of years later, King David. 
before he became king, look at who David is. See him in 1 Samuel. He's a beloved son, the youngest. He's set apart by God for future greatness. In 1 Samuel 16, you'll find that. And in the next chapter, you see he's sent by his dad to his distant brothers. He faces death, not at their hands, but others. He faces death and is vindicated. And ultimately, it leads to the freedom and gathering of a people. And what do we find here in Joseph's story? It's the same thing. See these echoes that God uses in the stories he tells. Joseph, beloved son, set apart by God for future greatness, sent by dad to his distant brethren, where he faces death, and as we're going to find out in the next few weeks, is ultimately vindicated, and the reason for it was the gathering and freedom of a people. See these echoes? Even while he's in this pit, there are echoes. But both those stories and others in the Bible actually bear prophetic echoes of the greatest story. Because when we come to look at Jesus, who this book is all about, when we come to see Jesus, we see the beloved eternal Son, who in agreement with the Father and Holy Spirit was set apart for a demonstration of his future greatness, sent by Dad to a distant people, where he faces death and he's vindicated in ultimate victory over death that his people might be set free. It's the same story. Echoes. Do you see this? But what is even more wonderful, what makes it the greatest story, is that we don't see a king who is pointed to by Joseph and David and others. We see a king, not only that, but a king who actually descended into our pit to lift us up and rescue us. You see, a pit means you can't lift yourself out. That's why it's a pit. Otherwise, it'd be a big hole with an escalator or a pulley system. It's a pit, you can't get out. You need a rescuer. Joseph needed a rescuer. We need a rescuer. Thank God there is one. With a capital O. That's why despite in the darkness, we don't always see them, we don't always hear them, but there are echoes of something greater, something good. What do they do? They all point to the third thing. Hope. Because in Christ, this is a categorical statement, in Christ every pit has hope. Without him there isn't. With him there is. Every pit. It's a personal pit you're in or the pit we're all in. In Christ, there is hope with a capital H. See, whether Joseph held on to his hope while he was in the pit, while he was in slavery, while he was in prison, whether he lost it at any point, it's not always clear. Whether he did or not, didn't change the fact, still remained, that there was hope. God knew what he was up to. God hadn't abandoned him, even though it looked like it. It was all part of a plan. Even decades before, Genesis 15, verse 13, you see God says to Abraham, your descendants will end up in another nation. They'll be there for 400 years and then they'll be released into freedom. God knew exactly what he was up to. And that's what happens. After Joseph ends up here, we're going to find out what happens in in Egypt. It creates a gathering of a people. 
see, God had the promised land set up for his people. And if that just meant Israel, Jacob, and his children, this is a small little clan trying to take a promised land. Not really going to happen. Through this 400 years being left in Egypt as a result of Joseph ending up in a pit. It's all part of this bigger story. As a result of this, God's people amassed to such a size that when they do finally get their great rescue, they're rescued and released in huge numbers and with great possessions, a force to be reckoned with. God knew exactly what he was up to. See, our timing is not his timing. His ways aren't our ways. How much do we trust him when things aren't going our way? Good question. So when you're sold into slavery, and I don't think any of us here have been, but today there are still more slaves than at any other point in human history. It happens, even today. When you're sold into slavery, or when you're hated, when you're conspired against, or when finances seem destitute, or your sickness still remains, and you've been asking God to take it away, and it doesn't seem to go, and you don't know why. You're in a pit. But we do need to know that in Christ, every pit has hope. It may feel like it, but God does not have it in for you. You're his kid. He's got your best interests at heart. And Romans 8:28 promises that you'll work together for the good of those who love him. Always, every single time, without fail, even when it doesn't look like it. There's always a sure and certain hope. And humanity at large, we're in a pit. This world is so broken and it has its own darkness. But it also has its own echoes of something greater. We can see God at work, but we just have to look from a certain angle sometimes. We need to know that there is a king who plumbed the depths and rose again, that we might know hope, that we might know a God who understands, that we might know a God who conquered all for an eternal coming together. You see, in, I think if you've seen the Lord of the Rings films or read the books, highly recommended. At the end of the third one, the big ending, the ring has been thrown into the Mount of Doom the bad is trashed. The good is won the day. But Samwise Gamgee, one of the little hobbits, he's passed out. He doesn't know all this has been okay. And he wakes up right at the end and he sees his friend Gandalf, the wizard. And he declares, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The Bible says yes. Revelation 21. This world can really feel like a pit and it feels like a pit because it is a pit. It's a beautiful planet but it's broken. Humanity's in a mess and whatever answer humanity comes up with politically, economically still goes awry, doesn't it? But Revelation 21 verse 4 this is God and his people, saved through his son Jesus Christ. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, there is something wrong with this world. And there is something wrong with the stories we live within it. It's all been tainted by sin. All the cogs are out of sync, aren't they? But one day, all sad things will come untrue. We need to hold fast. And when we're in the pit, the one at large or the ones we're personally dealing with in our own lives, when we're in the pit, we need to recognise that despite the darkness, there are echoes of something greater. We need to look and hear for these echoes and recognise that they lead us to hope and then remind us that in Christ, every pit has hope. Should we stand and worship again? Yeah?